0: This is Teaming with Ideas, the podcast that explores how people at work, work together. I'm Carlos de your host, and I spent decades working with teams, as well as researching, writing, and speaking about collaboration. Over the years, I've met some brilliant people, academics, business leaders, managers, consultants, who share my passion for collaboration. In Teaming with Ideas, I'll be speaking with these experts who will share their thoughts, experiences, theories, and practices so that you can put them to work to make your work life richer and more rewarding. Enjoy. In this teeming with Ideas episode, you, my brilliant listeners, will meet Robert Jeanette, a Teams practitioner and researcher with a bachelor's in psychology and criminology, an MBA, and a PhD in organizational behavior from Yale. I met Robert a few years ago at the Center for Creative Leadership, where we did some work together. In this interview, we explore common myths and misunderstandings about teams and team building. And you'll hear Robert's fascinating stories of his work with teams in the U.S. military, at NASA, in hospital surgical suites, and in commercial airline cockpits.
1: Enjoy. Well, thank you, Carlos. And uh, listeners, it's nice to be here. Um, as Carlos said, my name is Robert Jeanette. And I uh, I have a a, a rather sordid background of how I got into this. My uh, first introduction to teams was in the military, where I was assigned to lead covert action teams. And I tried reading everything I could on leadership. And at the time, everything I read was written by generals and presidents. And it was about how to lead huge organizations and armies of great proportion. And I was interested in how I get my two or three guys in and out successfully without anyone dying. So that carried on as I advanced and eventually ended up at the Air Force Academy where they decided I should get my PhD. So I shopped for universities that were interested in teams and Virtually no organizations or universities were at that time, except Yale. A guy named Richard Hackman was there and Victor Broom, and they thought it would be okay to have somebody who was interested in how you lead small teams, even though they admitted there had not been a lot of work done in that, which as a graduate student turns out to be perfect. So that's how I got into teams and started studying teams. Uh, I came back to the Air Force Academy where I was a tenured professor and then moved on to the Center for Creative Leadership. So that's probably enough about me.
0: I'm personally fascinated by your background and I'm told you have some great stories to tell. (laughs) And that comes, by the way, from our mutual friend and a past guest on this podcast, Vadula Bal. Great person. You and I share an interest in not only what works for teams, but what doesn't work and despite the fact that it doesn't work, still gets done. I think you talk about this as some of the myths of team building.
1: That, that is correct, Carlos. In fact, going back when Richard Hackman and I were writing a book and it was originally supposed to be entitled Groups That Work, which is what people hope would happen. The more research we did on it and the more others were asked to contribute, we found out that almost all the teams had at least some degree of failure. And the editor for the book said, I'm not sure you've chosen the right title. So we changed the title and it became groups that work and those that don't. So we could include more more of our groups in it. But that's where we got started in looking at some of the reasons this happened. Perhaps the biggest overriding cause is that we live in an individualistic culture with few exceptions in the global economy we're focused on individuals and how individuals perform and that's sort of the root of creating the problem i worked with a uh, football coach once and i believe his favorite saying to tell people was if everybody gives 100% 100% of the time we will win and he was a fairly successful football coach and certainly knew more about it than i did so we believe that was true, although their team was not perfect and had a number of failures as well. It wasn't until I got into the academic side of it that I stumbled on something called systems theory, which we're not going to go into here today, but yeah, one small part of systems theory says, if you have a big system and it has a number of subsystems supporting it, if any one of those subsystems optimizes. The system as a whole cannot optimize. And I thought, well, now, you know, this helps me understand what was going wrong with that football team. So a short example would be if they have a very fast running back uh, and they're going to do kind of an end sweep where everybody's going to move to the right side and theoretically block for this fast running back. If that fast running back catches the ball from the quarterback and then pauses just a moment, to remember what that coach has told him over and over again, give a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time he will take off running as fast as he can. That's his hundred percent. And every time they do this, he will outrun the blocking backs and they will lose five to seven yards. That's because the subsystem has optimized and the big system cannot. So the myth is that's what happens. What really happens is people learn to give appropriately so the system can optimize. The whole team is more important than the individual. So there's myth one.
0: What would that look like in a work team setting? So we got some folks who aren't fans of American football out there. How about an example that someone might understand using a workplace team?
1: Well, believe it or not, Carlos, one of the most frequent places that in our research we found this happening, was on executive teams or C-level teams, because oftentimes the people that are selected to be on that have a long history of splendid individual excellence. The CFO, for example, might come up as a brilliant financial analyst or contributor, get selected for the executive team, and in his career or her career, that person may have never actually had any team experience. And so we've sort of placed them in an unfair vacuum because they haven't learned anything about teams. They've excelled by individual performance, and now that's all they know how to contribute. So they might do things from a financial standpoint that it's their best shot, but it might be very harmful in terms of sub in the organization.
0: I think Western corporations or Western-style corporations tend to be built to optimize individual performance, and I love this one—the 100%, 100% of the time. I want to get that poster. I want that up on my wall. <laughs>
1: yeah. Here's a classic one, and it kind of helps illustrate how sometimes academics have tried to contribute, but it gets misinterpreted when put into the work setting. So uh, when I'm doing consulting training exercises with teams and groups of teams, I will often ask them, "How many people in here?" know about the group formation process according to Tuckman? And there may be one or two hands that goes up, typically people who are taking an organizational behavior class at the time or something. And I'll say, okay, let's try it differently. How many people have heard of group formation using forming, storming, performing, and norming? Well, virtually every hand goes up. Everybody knows about that. That's how groups form. And we've been trained and taught that. And you can even find books where that's what they claim. So when I first started actually out of the classroom and into the real world, my first teams that I looked at were surgical teams at Yale New Haven Hospital. And I spent about two weeks, I probably observed 10 to 15 different surgical teams. And I came back to our our research team that was doing the work. And I said, I'm not so sure I'm good at this. And they would say, well, why, Robert? And I said, well, I've, I've watched like 10 or 15 surgical teams, and we all know Tuckman. I can clearly see when they form. I can tell you the moment the team is formed. But then they move right on, and they're performing surgery. I'm unable to see the storming phase or the norming phase. I'm just not good at it. And they said, well, maybe it's something to do with surgical teams. Why don't you go? to what our research contract wants us to look at and air crews and start with that. So I spent about a month getting familiar with the airline crews and I flew in the cockpit with them and I came back to our meeting and I said, here I am again, I really don't think I'm good at this because I can tell you when they form and the next thing I know, we're lifting this plane off the ground and flying and I, I never see them storm or norm.
0: Can I, ask, can I ask you a question about this? I'm, I'm just curious. So in both the surgical example and the cockpit example, you were not commercial aircraft in this case, mm-hmm. were these crews, stranger groups essentially, or were they folks who didn't normally work together?
1: That's actually another topic we could talk about later on. But in almost all cases, they had never worked together as an entire team. In fact, an operations researcher who once studied airline crews said, if you and I work together today as a pilot and co-pilot, the next time we are likely to work together is 5.6 years from now. So no kidding. Yeah. It's very unlike now, if you, if you get surgical teams that have a very unique specialty, that team might work together over time. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Nope. These were not familiar with each other.
0: Okay. So the, they're unfamiliar. I'm sure then, before they climbed into the cockpit or went into the, the surgical theater, they did a couple of trust falls with each other and shared their Myers-Briggs, <laughs> right? I mean, they would have to, otherwise it couldn't work.
1: You would You would hope so, but that is not the case. They just jumped in and went to work.
0: And they were effective.
1: More often than not, but they were not as perfect as we might like. And we have data on that, which we can, again, talk about later. But somebody said in our group, what do you mean they don't storm? And I said, well, we've all seen storming when we watch students. We know what storming is. But as they form up in the surgical suite, you never see the scrub nurse say, you know what? I've been doing this job for 15 years. I've never done it with you. But I actually think I could cut better than you cut. That would be storming. You just don't see that. And so... (laughs) Richard Hackman, the genius that he was, said, well, maybe we should go back and read Tuckman. Of course, we're all graduate students. We're going, oh, geez, Richard, everybody knows Tuckman. He said, I didn't say you didn't know Tuckman. Let's go back and actually read his research. So we did, and we found out Tuckman was absolutely right about what he researched. But what he researched only contained two unique kinds of groups, students in learning laboratories, And if we've seen those, and ready for this one, mental patients in group therapy sessions. And I have confirmed that. If you watch either of those two groups, you will see forming, storming, norming, and performing. But not if you're having teams with a relevant organizational setting. They pick up so much information from being in the organization, that they really don't need this and they don't do it.
0: I guess the fun I was poking at Trust Falls and Myers-Briggs has a little bit to do with these folks were able, for the most part, to get things done together without having to first do exercises to get to know each other terribly well. I've done a ton of the stuff that I learned at grad school to do with groups, which is build trust. Let's learn about your personality preferences, and I'll talk to you about mine, and therefore we'll work better together. I found, at least, that wasn't playing out in the workplace setting (laughs) I was part of. And that's what's fascinating to me about the work you're talking about here. Surgeons, airplane pilots, high stakes roles. You do something wrong, there are lives at risk.
1: That is correct. That actually leads us to maybe a third myth. The counterside of what you were just talking about is teams often feel, or leaders of teams, or myths about teams is teams will get stale. And so we always need to bring in new people and churn the team, when in fact, the exact opposite is true. And our research, mine and a bunch of other people's, we have never found a case where a team makes a serious error because they get complacent. What happens is they usually never get a chance to get to complacency because there's there's too much churn going on. And since we'd been talking about airline crews, and I've done a lot of work with airline companies and crews, let me give you a statistic from the National Transportation Safety Board. The NTSB, when they looked at accidents in commercial aviation, they found that 73% of the accidents happened on the first day of the cruise working together. And 44% of them happened on the first leg, the first flight with these crews. And it's because they didn't know how to work with each other. Yeah, they knew who the pilot was, they knew who the co-pilot was, they knew the role of the flight attendant, but they hadn't really got a chance to work together. And so it's not the churn that's the problem. It's that we don't allow teams to build and develop uh, appropriately. Just as a side note, and again, this may be too specific, but it's fascinating data. Of all the airlines we studied and air crews, the most effective were the ones who were the pilots of military bombers, B-1s and B-52s that we studied. These guys aren't even allowed to touch that airplane until they have worked together, trained together, gotten to know each other. And then over time, before, again, they're really required to do anything critical they were training to deliver nuclear weapons. That's of like the ultimate let's get it right. They built a high-performance team first. The lesson I'm taking
0: out of this is we work together and train together around specifically what we're going to do in order to be sure we get that right. That time together matters, and it's not just time together over lunch. It's time together working through the thing we're going to end up doing
1: together. That is the ultimate ideal setting. We talk about building sort of high definition training that's very close to what we're going to do. That's the objective. So
0: for our managers out there, folks who are people leaders, as you build your team, think very hard about giving your people the experience, doing what it is you're going to ask them to do in the real world. The ropes course is going to be fun and be distracting. But remember, if you've got a team of marketers, you've got to make sure they're learning how to do that marketing thing in relation to the outcomes and results you want to produce.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it even gets worse. Sometimes I'll come into an organization and I'll ask, have you done anything in terms of teams? And they'll go, oh yeah, yeah. In fact, just last month, we had a team development session. I go, really? Well, tell me about it. Well, we went out and played golf all day. (laughs) Well, not only is that not the work you do, golf is an individual sport. I'm not sure how you learn about teams doing that.
0: (laughs) What some have called over collaboration. In other words, we apply teamwork and collaboration to whatever comes up. The tendency to use teamwork as the panacea at the at the office. Now, look, in the crazy complex world we live in now, it is important that we know how to collaborate to get things done because none of us has all the information that we need to solve the problems we're trying to solve, right? But for heaven's sake, it's not all about teamwork all the time. And I try to help teams understand when is it the right thing to do teamwork? And I usually use the word collaboration. And when is it not the right thing? When's it better to let capable individuals go do the thing they do so well without jamming a teamwork imperative down their throats?
1: Let me cite my mentor, Richard Hackman, who used to say, there is no doubt that teams can do magic, but all work is not teamwork. (laughs) And Teamwork can indeed produce magic. Teams can do wonderful things, but all work is not teamwork.
0: When is the right time for for things to be declared teamwork?
1: There are are a number of criteria for that. First of all, as you pointed out, it does need to be a task that requires a team. Not all tasks are team tasks, and we need to get it off to a good start. That's a critical point. Secondly, If it's really going to be something that a team can do, it should require differentiated skills. Different people have different specialties that they bring. If everybody brings the same specialty, we might have a fun group, but it's probably not a a task for a team. And lastly, they need to be interdependent in real time. If I can do my work And then just mail it in and you can work on your part whenever you get around to it. Even if you can use mine to boost yours, that's not really a a situation that requires a team. A work group can do just fine there.
0: Okay. So interdependent in real time. Yes. Okay. So
1: I think what you're saying is, and right now everybody's
0: working remotely and many of us are using Dropbox kinds of applications where I do my bit. I upload it to a folder somewhere. Then you go into that folder, maybe You're in India and you go into that folder the next day, your time, and you pull it out and you do your bit. And then it goes back in the folder and it goes on to Robert, who's going to do his bit. That for you is not collaboration. That's work group work, not necessarily teamwork. Have I got that right?
1: Especially if it's done sort of more the old fashioned way where it's done with emails. Here's my work for the day. I'm sending that on. There has been some work done recently where sort of a group room is built it's not a real room, it's a virtual room. But then we work our problem to the point where we haven't got the answer, but it's time for us to go home. And so that is picked up in say, uh, Japan by real time workers. Now that's their first chance to see it. That counts almost as real time interdependence because they're working based on that. If the technology supports it, not just an email system, But you can move around the globe in sort of virtual real time. And that's okay. That counts. When you start a team, I think Richard and I and a number of people agree, that is the most important thing a leader will ever get to do with a team, is get it started off right. So we looked at air crews as, again, one example. And we found out, although this particular crew that may have never worked together before is going to spend a week together flying a schedule... What is really important is the first 15 minutes that leader gets to spend with them. That's where they get to get them started off right. And the two components of this that we think are critical is, first of all, the team needs clear direction about what it is we're supposed to be doing. Now, that may sound silly to most people, but when we actually studied real teams in real organizations, we found that very rarely... Did everybody on the team know what they were even supposed to be doing? So uh, hang on a second, though. If I'm <laughs> if I'm an aircraft
0: pilot and I've got a co-pilot and I, isn't it just like, okay, we're flying from New York to San Francisco. I'm the pilot and we know my role because that's pretty clearly defined and you know yours, let's go. Why would they not know what they're doing?
1: Well, it, certainly they <laughs> they would know that much. But th- let me give you an example. Two things that often conflict in a flying organization are one, safety. I mean, there shouldn't be any conflict about safety. And people will often tell you safety is our most important job. Okay. Well, that's good. Except you're also getting all this information from the corporate headquarters that the second biggest cost in our industry is fuel and anything you can do to help us save fuel, will support that. Well, that's fine. Except there are times when You got to figure out: Do you want me to save fuel, or do you want me to be safe? If you want me to save fuel, I'm going to stay up at thirty thousand feet until I'm right over the airport, and then fall out of the sky. That'll save fuel, but that's not safe. So those are the kind of things that are important that get discussed. The second component of that, getting it right up in front, and again, this may sound crazy, is the team needs to be appropriately bounded. Now that's almost an academic thing. What what are you talking about there? There's two components. One and this is the one that surprises people. You need to know who's on the team and who's not. With an air crew, turns out that was an easy one to study because once we locked the door, I knew who the cockpit crew was. Nobody left midway through my project. But if you study executive teams, very rarely do they all agree on who's actually on the team. I worked with the General Motors Corporation for a while and they told me their executive team for North America had 18 members. Well, I could never get the same 18 in the room. I I didn't I, and that was part of their problem too. Yeah. And the other side of it is, you don't want to be too bounded so that you only think it's you against the world. No, you have to have some permeability in that boundary too. So getting that right is the leader's job and it's not easy. It's hard to put an absolute time on because of the demands. But for example, we studied project teams in the Department of Defense and found out sometimes the best team leaders were the ones who didn't let them get started on the task right away, Mm -hmm. that they they did some of the things you were joking about. They took them off site and had Myers-Briggs and they did ropes courses and things like that to get them at least talking to each other. Then they would start on the task. So is it for airline crews? It's 15 minutes. Sometimes for surgical teams, it was five minutes. One symphony conductor, Richard Hackman worked with when Richard said, so I guess the first rehearsal is important for you. He said, first rehearsal, I got about 15 seconds to get them started right. So it varies, but it is important. Excellent. What's next? Differentiated skills. It's now football season. So if you use a, a college football team, if you look at them, they don't all look the same. They bring different skills. So you have a guy who's a really good throwing the ball. Some guys who are tall and skinny and really good at catching the ball. Some guys that are the heavy jumbo guys who are really good at blocking or tackling. That's the way you make up a team. If everybody looks exactly the same, has the same skills, then maybe you have an accounting work group, but that's not really a team. Teams by design, bring differentiated skills, which again makes a challenge for the leader. And how do you appropriately coordinate this?
0: And number three, what was
1: number three again? Interdependence. We know where we're going. We know who's on the team and who's not. And we've got differentiated skills that each bring that make us more powerful. But if we're not interdependent, then we could do our work in different space and time. And you can do that. That's not saying that's bad. It's just saying that doesn't require a team if they're not interdependent. So I suppose a surgeon could do the surgery all by herself. I've never seen it, but I suppose it could be done, but not effectively or efficiently or collaboratively. So you're you're going to have to have somebody who's responsible for anesthesia, somebody who's responsible for getting the appropriate instruments to the surgeon, somebody who's monitoring time. There's all kinds of roles that go on and they are truly interdependent. The biggest thing that this limits that we find, again, we're almost back to myths, is I worked with a CEO one time. He called me in and he said, I want my whole organization to be one team. (laughs) And and, And I said, how many people are we talking about here? And he said, we had 600 people. I want a 600-person team. And I go, I don't think that's going to happen because you got people that don't even know each other, much less what they do or how they contribute. So it's virtually impossible for that to be interdependent.
0: You know, I think part of our challenge working in the corporate world is that people use the word team fairly loosely. <laughs> My team is the people who are connected to me by lines, but on the org chart, Actually, that's why I prefer the word collaboration. We may be a so called team, but where do we need to collaborate? Yeah. Differentiated skills, different kinds of roles, and different capabilities and responsibilities.
1: My rule of thumb is I like single digit teams. If we get to seven, we're about as big as I like to get us. And if we got 18, we're not a team. Size counts,
0: pardon the expression, but when it comes to effectively <laughs> collaborating, you're right the single digits seem to suggest to us i think appropriate sizes.
1: There's probably 25 things that are important. One that absolutely helps but isn't quite essential is it's nice to have a supportive team culture. It's nice to have an environment to work in that understand teams. So I got a chance to work with the Navy Seals for a while. That's an organization that understands All the real work is done in teams, and so we need to set up everything so it supports teamwork, not individual work. Uh, In a kind of a weird twist, sometimes organizations with what we would traditionally call the most effective HR systems are not very helpful for teamwork. They've got brilliant people that define the work and brilliant people that figure out testing to go out and select the right person. And then they do training to get that person's skills up, but they don't look at the team as a whole. And so they're very supportive of individual work, but not of the group as a whole. So yes, would I prefer that my organization really understands teamwork? Yes, it makes everything easier. On the other hand, when we were at the Kennedy Space Center, we did research down there for six years. And when we first got there, the director gave us a license plate frame that said, launch work is teamwork. And we're thinking, wow! (laughs) Turns out, that was about as much as the organization did to support teamwork. Everything else was individually supported. No
0: kidding. For something like that, when I was at IBM, IBM was involved with the shuttle launches and uh, had teams deployed down there. I was supporting the chief technology officer of IBM at the time, and I guess I just made an assumption that from the way they talked, oh, it was all about all team all the time. (laughs) I guess not, huh?
1: You shattered a pleasant illusion. (laughs) Well, keep in mind, there were some really effective teams that we would get to see, and we mostly were in what they call the OPF, the Orbiter Processing Facility. Anybody else would call it a hangar, but NASA has to rename everything. And there were some really great teams going on it. For example, Nobody was allowed to touch those main engines on the shuttle except Rocketdyne. And when Rocketdyne guys showed up, they were an intact, high-performance team. But otherwise, we've got a task to perform today. The computer has told us what skills the person needs to have. So a person from that shop shows up, and he or she may be working with two other people, and they've never worked together before in their life, and they're on a time schedule. So they just go and do their work, and it's not teamwork.
0: And it sounds like that it was appropriate, in this case, for much of it not to be teamwork. When we have a shuttle blow up on us, I guess perhaps that suggests the opposite. Uh, You tell me.
1: We didn't get asked to come down there by our NASA research monitor until after the Challenger accident. And so immediately after that, whatever was going on before, the pendulum had swung way over to, we're going to absolutely control every single moment in action. Well, that works into the individual's favor, not to the team's. I should mention, though, on the other hand, within this system, we found one amazingly small organization that always had great teamwork, and we couldn't figure out how come the rest of the organization doesn't do it. Well, the rest of the organization was under constant scrutiny. It's where the astronauts came, the senators came. That's where we were working in the orbiter processing facility. There was one organization that was so dangerous. It was like five miles out in the swamp down there. And they had really great teamwork. First of all, they couldn't afford not to because it was so dangerous. And secondly, sounds like it because it was so dangerous, nobody ever wanted to go out there. So <laughs> they they were in essence buffered from this other kind of non-supportive environment. And it worked out great for them.
0: Okay, this is a tough one, I think, Robert, because organizations I work with tend to be large, Mm -hmm. global, and organizational culture is a massive, mushy, ill-defined thing, despite all the posters on the walls with the values and (laughs) et cetera. But to the degree that we can influence organizational systems and processes to support collaborative work versus reinforcing individual effort, that would be a good thing for teams and organizations.
1: That is the best summary you could possibly have done, Carlos.
0: Thank you, (laughs) thank you, I'll take that. We've covered a lot of ground and you are just a deep well of knowledge and wisdom that I would love to continue to draw water from in the future. It's been great talking with you and to my listeners, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Robert Jeanette today. And I'll look forward to hearing from you on my website. We'll see you on the next podcast. Take care.
1: Hi, I'm Janet Aldrich, producer and director of Teaming with Ideas. Thanks for listening. And thank you for the music, John Wallerick and Brent Peterson. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, review, and share. Want more? Visit Carlos's blog, Teaming with Ideas, at carlosvdapena.com questions, click on the Contact Carlos button, and we'll answer promptly. To be interviewed on the Teeming with Ideas podcast, visit carlosvdepena.com forward slash podcast contact and complete the questionnaire. Thanks again for listening, and keep on Teeming with
0: Ideas.